Good evening, Clifford Baptist Church. Glad to see everybody here tonight on Wednesday night. And those of you streaming with us, thank you for joining for Bible study tonight. Uh, we're getting close to the end of our current study of just the general high peaks of the Bible and the thread that connects the Bible together uh, as we see it from Old Testament flow to New Testament. Uh, before I forget this, I want to say right now, next week... Uh, I am out of town, and so there will not be a streaming lesson next week. We will pick up the week after. Uh, so my apologies, but uh, there's a necessity in the family for me to be out of town next week, so we won't have a lesson next week. But we continue on tonight with lesson number 30, and let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father, our God, we love you. We are so thankful for your word, Father. And the more we study it and the more we allow it to become a part of our life and our heart and our mind, Father, the more wonderful it becomes and the more connected it becomes. Uh, Father, I, I, I just pray that you will help us to see that the Bible holds hands with itself throughout the message from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The centerpiece is the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, the culmination is the cross and the empty tomb. But all of the Bible revolves around the love of God and the thread of your uh, love for us and your fidelity and your faithfulness to your people throughout history, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you that we can always depend that, knowing that you're with us, Father. So bless us in this evening as we study. Uh, Father, I pray that you will bless each student who is here in the church, those who are streaming with us, as well as those who are joining us in the parking lot by an FM signal. Father, however we come, we thank you that we are one body in the living Lord Jesus, and we thank you that your banner over us is love, and tonight we know that you're going to teach us. Bless us, we pray. We love you and thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, so as we get started tonight on lesson number 30, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. We have started in the general letters section. That's the heading right now is the general letters of the New Testament. I'll give a little more explanation of that in uh, moments to come. But I want to backtrack just for a moment, uh, just in case we have some latecomers or those who are visiting with us for the first time tonight. Uh, you've just tuned in to our stream. Uh, let me just give you a layout of the New Testament so we can familiarize ourselves with that territory once again as we move on. And I will move quickly because I have a lot of information tonight and a lot within this study, and we have to move with it. And of course, you know, the New Testament begins with the four Gospels, the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus Christ through the eyes of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, and of course, the culmination of that account, that biography of the life of Jesus is the cross and the resurrection of Christ. It is included in every single one of the Gospels. Uh, also then, we have the book of Acts, which follows the Gospels, uh, the one book of the New Testament that is uh, relating the history of the Gospel outreach and the creation of the church and the church's ministry throughout the first century of the church's life. It was written by the only Gentile who uh, contributed to the message of the Bible. His name was Luke. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. But one Gentile alone uh, contributed to the holy word of the Bible, and that is the physician Luke. Uh, Thirteen bona fide letters of Paul follow that. Uh, he writes letters to the churches and also to individuals, uh, Romans through Philemon. And uh, we know that these books come back to back through the Bible, but let me ask you this. How are they ordered? Simply ordered by length. 
uh, as the book of Romans begins. It is the longest letter of Paul. The last one, the letter to Philemon, is the shortest letter uh, that Paul wrote. Uh, After the letters of Paul are eight letters by different authors within the New Testament, and that's the section we're going to be in tonight. The general letters, they are not Pauline letters, but rather they're from other authors. And finally, the ending prophecy of Revelation will be uh, our Lesson 32, the final lesson of this study. Okay, our section tonight then is the letters by authors other than the missionary Paul. Last week in Lesson 29, we gave the whole lesson to the long and intellectual and rather complicated letter called Hebrews. It is a wonderful study, a wonderful letter. I just hit some of the high points. I pray that that study will drive you on into studying more deeply in Hebrews. That's the first of the general letters. This week, we're going to quickly consider four books of your New Testament uh, within these general letters. We are going to have an overview of James... First and second, Peter and Jude. So we're going to just give a, a, a bird's eye view of those four letters of the Bible. Let's start with James. Uh, look at James. Open your Bible with me to James chapter 1, verse 1. Keep your Bible open throughout the study. We'll be moving right on forward through these letters. And as we look at the high points, let's look at James chapter 1, verse 1. It begins this way. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So he's writing to a group of people. This opening tells us that a man named James is the author. He's a servant of God. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. But do we know any more about this man whose name is James? Well, in the Bible, there are three predominant Jameses in the New Testament. Two of them are Jesus' disciples. They're two of the twelve disciples. So the first one of the three predominant Jameses in the New Testament, the first one is James, the son of Alphaeus. He is a quiet Uh, unknown disciple. We don't have much of any information on the disciple James, son of Alphaeus. He is a quiet disciple, but it is very unlikely that James, that disciple, wrote this book. Secondly, there is another James in your New Testament. He is the brother of John, the disciple. Uh, And, of course, James and John were the brothers, the sons of Zebedee. They were known as Boanerges in their younger days, sons of thunder and fire, and they had fiery personalities. Uh, And also James and John uh, and Peter seemed to be the leading disciples. But this James, the disciple of Jesus, the brother of John, was probably not the author to this book of James, reason being... Uh, According to Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, James was one of the first disciples to die as a servant of Jesus Christ. He died a martyr's death. He died by the sword under King Herod, according to Acts chapter 12. So he was gone by the time that this book was written. There's one other James in the Bible that is a candidate for writing this letter. And it's James, the half-brother of Jesus the Christ. Uh, They share the same mother. They share Mary as a mother. God himself is the father 
of Jesus Christ. Joseph is the earthly father of James. And so they're half-brothers sharing the mother Mary. Now, how do we know that Jesus had siblings? Well, write this reference down just as a little text that you can go to. It's Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 56. So Matthew chapter 13, begin with verse 54. Listen to these words, and it tells us about uh, Jesus' family. And when he, Jesus, was coming to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Whence then hath this man all these things? So, Those who are listening to Jesus and his words are realizing that he is Joseph the carpenter's son. Joseph, of course, is his earthly father. Uh, And they realize that he is from the family, and all of these children belong to Mary and Joseph. Uh, And they name the brothers. James is one of those brothers that is named here. So it's interesting that we see that Jesus had that brother. Here's the interesting fact. During Jesus' three years of ministry... The Bible teaches us that his brothers did not follow him. His earthly brothers did not believe him. John chapter 7 verse 5 says, Neither did his brethren believe in him. Now, when was James saved? If he indeed is this author, and yet it says in Jesus' ministry years, those three years that he didn't believe, didn't follow his brother as the Savior, when did he come to Christ? Well, after Jesus was ascended to heaven after the resurrection, according to Acts chapter 1, the disciples gathered in the upper room, and they also were joined by a few other believers, according to Acts chapter 1, verse 14. And they were called brethren. Now the word that's used in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, for brethren, the Greek word is adelphos, and it means of the same womb. So earthly brothers gathered along with the disciples gathered there in that room. History also teaches us, through Josephus and some other historians, that Jesus' brother James rose up to be a great believer. And the brother of Jesus rose up to be a tremendous leader in the first century church. So this New Testament letter of leadership is attributed to the half-brother of Jesus, whose name was James. He is intelligent, this letter is forceful, and it makes its points well. Now, who does James write the letter to? To whom is this letter addressed? Well, according to chapter 1, verse 1 of James, it's going to the 12 tribes of Jews who are scattered. So they're living outside of Palestine. They've been forced into those living conditions. Uh, They're Christian believers. So this letter is written to Christian Jews who have been forced out of their home country by persecution. They're scattered by persecution. They're scattered living hard lives. And James writes to give them direction. His major counsel for them is to continue living what they believe, what they have learned, what they have been taught. Uh, James is telling them to continue living, continue serving the Christ under the way that you have learned to do so. Even if you're living in persecution, don't turn your back 
on your Savior, Jesus. So he writes to give them direction. And his major counsel, as you look through the book of James, and I think there's a couple in here who've told me James is their favorite book of the Bible. But as you look at and read through uh, the book of James, you will find that his major counsel is live what you believe. It's a very practical book. It has very practical guidance for the Christian. In fact, what he's saying is don't be so concerned about the world. Don't be so fearful about the world. Uh, Don't be so fearful about even the persecution that's following you that you walk away from Jesus. Stay true to him. No matter what life circumstances bring, stay true to Jesus. The key statement of the book, if you want to write this down, it's very important. The key statement of the book is James chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Let me read that very quickly. James chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. He says, Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? If you truly believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there will be some produce, something coming out of your life as a witness uh, and as a representative of His. Very, very important. Uh, Also, uh, just as we close this little bit of a study of the book of James, he addresses how we treat the poor within the church fellowship. Remember, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. He's talking to believers who gather together. And he says, treat Everyone within the church, if they be rich or if they be poor, treat everyone equally. Treat everyone with the same respect and the same dignity. Also, a major point of James is keep your tongue tame. Keep control of your tongue. How important that is. Let's read a very very incisive passage. James chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. Here's what James says. Again, this is a forceful letter, and it makes its point very well. James 3, verse 5 says this, Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. So every kind of beasts and birds, of serpents, things that see tamed have been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. So a tongue that's released on our own human volition and sin will do great damage. Amen? That's exactly what... James is saying here, only God can tame the tongue, the Spirit of God living in us, teaching us how to relate to one another. And then also, he says, be wise and draw near to God even as you're suffering. It's a book worthy of your study. We've got to move on. We move on to First and Second Peter. Two very interesting books within your Bible because they are very scholarly books. They're written in a scholarly way. But the interesting thing is they're written by... An old fisherman, 
written by a guy. Fishermen were not known for having great education. And yet we see the scholarly writings here of First and Second Peter. God absolutely held Peter's hand. Now, we do know that Peter had an amanuensis, a secretary. Perhaps he, he corrected some of the grammar, but I believe that God poured his word through Peter and improved his mind and improved his grammar as he expressed the word of God. God was holding his hand uh, as he uh, dictated and as he wrote this letter. Now, aside from Jesus himself, there is no one in the New Testament we know more about than Peter. Peter is well known, and I think if you and I are, are Bible students, there are a lot of ways that we identify with old Peter. Uh, I know I certainly do. Uh, he is described as the strongest man of the Bible, and he is described as the weakest man of the Bible, uh, even a man who would deny his Savior. Uh, he, so he's an amazing life, and yet he's a very realistic, real life, dealing with humanity. Uh, he is described in such great ways. But Peter's life changed dramatically. As we see him following Jesus Christ, he had his ups and he had his downs, and he made his faux pas and he made his mistakes. But Peter's life changed dramatically when the church was born. And when the Holy Spirit was given, and when the Spirit of God took up residence in Peter himself, uh, and we see that happen in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Peter preached the first sermon of the church, preached on that day of Pentecost that we see recorded in Acts chapter 2, the day that the church was born. Uh, and he brought 3,000 converts into the church as it was born that day. The Holy Spirit was given, it came to live in his heart, and he expressed it as he preached. What we see in Peter is a transition that fulfilled Jesus' call in his life. At one time, he was a common fisherman. But as the Lord filled his life, he became an uncommon fisher of men, uh, drawing many thousands to, uh, to the church in his earthly life, as we see it expressed here, but through these two little letters, bringing millions more in uh, as time has gone on. Now, why did he write the letters of 1 and 2 Peter? Why did Peter pen these letters by the grace of God? Well, at the time he wrote, the church was under the sharpest, hardest persecution that we see within the New Testament. Christians desperately needed encouragement and upbuilding in these days because they were under horrible persecution. July 64 A.D., the wicked emperor Nero set, room, uh, set fire to Rome. Why did Nero set fire to his own city? He was clearing out the old buildings so that he could build new, more modern buildings. But Nero was crafty like a snake. While he burned down the city to make more room for new buildings, he blamed the fires on the church. He blamed setting the fires on the Christian population in Rome. So the years 64 and 65 AD were absolutely horrible for the church. Believers were burned at the stake they were punished in every imaginable way. Families were split apart, running for their lives. It was a dark day for the church. And yet, in these years, the church grew like never before. 
Over history, it has been proven over and over again that when the church goes through its greatest persecutions are the days that the church grows in some of the greatest spurts of all time. Uh, so as, as Peter writes these letters, he is, he is encouraging the Christian church. He's encouraging his fellow believers. And in fact, the word suffering is used 16 times in 1 Peter. In that short little book, suffering is used 16 times because he's acknowledging what his brothers and sisters are going through. Well, with that, 1 Peter, let's look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Listen to the way Peter opens his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So he's giving the multiplication of peace to those who have had a multiplication of persecution. So he's speaking directly to those who are persecuted. Now, in those two, in those two verses, he uses two words to describe the Christian population of his day. First of all, Peter calls these Christians, in verse 1, strangers. They were scattered. They were running for their lives. They were strangers in the areas where they were running. But in verse 2, Peter gives them another name. He calls them elect. Very different names, right? Those that are scattered and yet those who are elect by the love and the grace of God. The Greek word for elect is eklektos. And it means the called out ones, the chosen ones. So you see Peter is building them up saying even though you're scattered... God has chosen you. God is using you. God is protecting you. Don't think that God has withdrawn from you, even in persecution. So he's saying, Christians, have hope. God hasn't forgotten you. Even in the midst of all of these fiery trials, God has not forgotten you. God has not left you. He is with you. So the whole purpose of 1 Peter is stated in a couple verses. Write these verses down. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Here's the purpose of the writing of Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively or living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So as we see those words, we continue on, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are, underline this word, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That word in verse 5, you are kept, is a very important word. The Greek word is tereo. And it means you're preserved, you're watched over. God is with you every moment. He is with you regardless of the circumstances that you are going through. So another key verse of 1 Peter, write this verse down, is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. And I love this verse because he's telling them who they are. 
He's telling them how important they are to God. He says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, But ye, church, ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So as we see Peter giving that great definition uh, to the people of God, how important it is for us to know that he is building them up. And this entire letter is written by Peter to build up and encourage and give the promise that God is with them throughout all that they're walking in. Well, we have to move on because of time. Let's move on to 2 Peter. This letter also encourages the persecuted church. The main message, write this down if you're taking notes, the main message of this letter is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So here's what he says, First, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. The second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So as we see those words, he says, keep your mind, church, keep your mind centered on the Word of God. Never forget the Word of God. Never walk away from God's revelation of His Word to you. Keep your minds godly. Keep your minds pure, even in the midst of persecution. Keep purity in your minds. Do not be led away by the world. Don't be led away from Jesus by scoffers. For those who would persecute the church who are unbelievers, keep your mind pure. Keep it always in the direction of knowing that Jesus is walking with you. Now, the key phrase to keep the church on track in our mission is that no matter what comes against us, no matter the persecution, no matter the struggle that may come our way, remember this. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 again, and write this down. We are a chosen people. Uh, but also, I love this verse of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, because it tells us that all people are still, no matter what station they have in life, all people are loved by God. This is one of those uh, verses of the Bible that I have underlined, circled, starred. I've got red and orange around it, but listen to this. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. No matter your color, no matter your nation, no matter your background, no matter who you are, the Lord wants us in his kingdom. It's one of my favorite verses. It's the verse that keeps us on track. We don't run across any person in any avenue of our life who is not loved by God and wanted by God as his son or his daughter. And Peter ends this letter with a great counsel uh, no matter what the world might bring. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, and the last verse we'll look at is the last verse of the book, and it's verse 18. 2 Peter 3, 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. What a great way for Peter to close his two letters to the scattered church. Well, the fourth final letter that we're going to consider tonight 
is the little letter of Jude. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, you know that the next one is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We're going to consider them on their own alone in the next lesson. Uh, Lesson 31 has to do with 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, Someone who didn't know exactly how to read the Bible said, 3 I John. Uh, But we're not going to study them tonight. I want you to skip over the Johns, and I want you to go to the letter of Jude. Uh, This fourth general letter that we're considering tonight, the little letter of Jude. Uh, Jude is a letter that has only one chapter in it. Uh, It consists only of 25 verses. Uh, Jude is also listed in Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through 56, as one of the half-brothers of Jesus. I read that in, in the King James Version, his name is Judas and yet it's the same, same uh, name of Jude. So this too, one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Full brother to James, half-brother to Jesus. Uh, he came to Jesus as Savior after his ascension, uh, and uh, along, he, he, along with James, he comes to his own half-brother as his Savior, as his Lord. Now Jude also lived in a time when the church was under severe attack by Rome, uh, and the church had been invaded by false teachers. If you've hung with me through so much of our sermon series, especially as we look through the GE Power Company uh, and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, you know that those four letters dealt with false teachers who had crept into the churches. It was a very common theme of New Testament letters that the churches had untruth that was getting in under the, over the threshold and, and under the radar of the Christians there, false teachers sneaking into the church. Jude was also dealing with false teachers. Uh, and and uh, the false teaching was uh, a, se- a severe attack from, for the church. Uh, Rome was also uh, on the lookout for Christians then, and they were under persecution physically. So they were under persecution spiritually, With false teachers, they were under persecution physically as Rome was looking for their lives and looking for their heads. Now, Jude is the major New Testament book that is centered on confronting apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy means the people of God turning their back on biblical faith, running away from their faith, running away from the Savior they confessed And Jude wrote to condemn those who leave the truth of the faith and leave the fellowship of the church. Even though you're under persecution, don't leave the Lord. Don't leave the church. Even though you're running for your life, don't leave your brothers and your sisters. And he calls the church to defend the Bible and to defend the Word of God. So I want you to look at some of the key verses. There are only 25, but let's look at a few of them. Go with me to Jude, and we're going to start at the beginning, Jude, uh, verses 1 through 4. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares 
who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling them about the false teachers that are creeping into the church body to beware of them. Now slip on over to verse 17. So verse 17 of the book of Jude, so we pick up now with Jude writing, But beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. These be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So he is urging the church, do not be misled by physical persecution. Do not be misled by false teaching. Keep your mind always centered on Jesus. And then we have a beautiful benediction uh, this is a benediction that was, is worth, it's worthy of putting in our minds. All of God's word is worth putting in our mind. But this benediction is so beautiful. Look at the last two verses of Jude as he gives the benediction to the church. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. I love the closing of Jude. Now, I do have a little addendum here. I wrote a note saying, if time allows, you might want to talk about this verse. One of the verses that's been the, uh, the center of much uh, discussion over the centuries, of what does this verse mean? Look at Jude verse 9. Since I have five or so extra minutes here, let's just look at that verse. Jude verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Well, that's a, an unusual verse. The chief angel, the chief uh, warrior angel. You know, the angel Gabriel is the messenger angel, and we see Gabriel make appearance through the Bible. The, the, the angel, archangel Michael, is the warrior angel of the Bible, but it says the chief angel uh, Michael watches over Israel, and nowhere else in Scripture is there a struggle about the body of Moses mentioned. If you remember, as God uh, took Moses. Moses came to the end of his life, and it says at 120 years old that his frame was good, and he was a man of energy. His eye was clear. His mind was clear, but his job was done. And so God said, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to bury you in a private, secret place. But Jude says Mike, the archangel Michael had to fight Satan to do God's will for Moses' body. Um, Moses died on Mount Nebo. Uh, he did not enter the promised land, if you remember that. He was not able to enter the promised land because of an act of disobedience. Rather than speaking to the rock, 
to bring forth water. He beat the rock with a stick because of his frustration out of sin. And God did not allow Moses to go into the promised land at that moment. Yes, Moses did go into the promised land, uh, but not in that moment uh, as a physical being. We see in the transfiguration, Moses is in the promised land at the moment of the transfiguration. But physically, God did not allow Moses to go there. Uh, he died at Mount Nebo again, uh, but it says that he was buried in a secret place. If you want a reference for that, it's Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. So evidently, this confrontation with Satan took place as Michael, the archangel, was burying Moses in this secret place. Satan wanted to use his body, perhaps for some evil purpose, uh, but I want you to notice, most importantly here, uh, the, the reason I believe that Jude wrote uh, this verse of Scripture, uh, of course inspired by God himself. Michael didn't take on, the archangel, the warrior angel Michael, did not take on Satan by himself. Do you notice that? Uh, even though he is a powerful, powerful angel, he does not face Satan down himself, but rather he says, the Lord rebuke thee. And I believe there's a great lesson in that, in that you and I face Satan and wickedness and sin every day, but we're not to stand toe-to-toe with Satan. We are to be encased in the love and protection and strength of our holy God and call on the Lord to fight our battle because we belong to him. He's the general. Let him have that battle. Exactly what the archangel Michael did when he spoke to Satan. He said, the Lord rebuke you. I don't have the power to rebuke you, but God Almighty does. And I think it's a great lesson for us in the church. So four letters, general letters of the New Testament. Every one of them has a message, and the message is just as fresh, just as real, and just as needed for the church as if it were written this morning. Uh, I hope that this drives you to study these letters a little bit more, but the next time we meet in a lesson, we will look at the precious letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The same John who wrote the Gospel of John, Uh, The same John who laid his head on the breast of Jesus. Uh, The same John who traced the footsteps of Jesus. Uh, The one who lived the longest out of the disciples, writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And these are the last letters that the old disciple John writes. That will be the the centerpiece of our study next time as we're coming to the next to last lesson, lesson number 31. That's where we'll be as we meet again. Streamers, God bless you. Thank you for joining us tonight. Let's just close with a word of prayer. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it blesses and touches and teaches our life every time we open it. Father, I realize tonight that especially as we try to encase four precious letters of the Bible into a half hour or so, that's nearly impossible. And yet, Father, I pray that as we took just a mountaintop view of what these letters stand for, that it drives us to read them and study them and to dig out the truth that is in every single one of them, Lord. Thank you for just giving us your benediction and your grace and your blessing as your people. And as Revelation teaches us, and I believe that while it is certainly stated in Revelation about that book, I believe that it is true for every single book of the Bible. When we open your word, you automatically bless us. When we study your word, you're automatically giving us your light and your wisdom and your blessing. So bless us tonight, we pray. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And good night.